You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joron Grief, the lead for the Tiger Beetle Project. He's been building a new high-performance database, among other things, to solve some real-world problems, and has some very impressive results to show for it. We talk about performance, safety, security, and why he ended up choosing the Zig programming language for Tiger Beetle's implementation. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, building a database. All right, Jordan, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much, Richard. Awesome to be here. Okay, so you are the lead for the Tiger Beetle project. Can you give me a little bit of background on like what's sort of like motivating the project? What's the problem that it's working to solve? Yeah, sure. So I, I never expected to be here. It's a pretty interesting story. Like funny how life connects the dots. You know? So <laughs> I've always been coding since I was a kid. QBasic, Visual Basic, Java, PHP, Ruby, JavaScript, C, Zig. But I never studied coding. And I decided, you know, I'll balance myself out and do a little bit of accounting at university. So that, that was my major. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So accounting and business, I was always selling things as a kid, you know, doing hobbies, you know, where I was, I was making things and selling things. So I, I always loved coding and I loved like small businesses, studied accounting. And that, that was actually the top of my list of things not to study. That, that was the last thing I wanted to study. So I figured that would actually be something good to study. I did it of my own accord. You know, I was enrolled actually for engineering. I had a scholarship and I still decided, no, I'm going to do accounting. So it's, it was really interesting because fast forward in years later, I won't say how many, but I'm actually building an accounting database. So Tiger Beetle is a financial accounting database. And it basically came out of this open source project for Africa, which is pretty interesting. I was just so lucky. I bumped into someone literally on the football soccer field. And afterwards, I thought, well, they're pretty interesting. Let me go and chat to them. And turned out they had a call to the States on a Tuesday. I was doing some security consulting for Microsoft on a Monday. So you know, we both had these calls to the States. That was the link. This was Adrian. He worked at Coil. He was doing payments. He was the co-chair of the working group for payments for the web. You know, W3C payments group is quite something. Apple are there, Google are there, Facebook, MasterCard, Visa. And there's Adrian of Coil, and he's the co-chair. You know? So I bumped into him. And the next thing I knew, I was doing performance engineering or analysis of this open source payment switch for Africa. And I knew nothing about payments. It was a totally new field for me. And the first thing I learned was that you know all payments between systems are essentially the two-phase commit protocol. That's what everybody's doing, because you're moving money within a system, but you also have to move it to other systems, like you've got different banks and different payment systems, and you've got even these like mobile money systems where you send money across phones, or you've got digital wallets, but all of them essentially are doing some kind of messaging, and then there's two-phase commit protocol to make sure the money either moves or it doesn't move, doesn't get stuck in the Atlantic somewhere. You know? Right, yeah. So that was the first thing I learned. But the second thing I learned as we were looking at this modular payment switch, it was a pretty interesting project, by the way. So this is for Africa, and it's a nonprofit foundation, the Mojulip Foundation. It's open source. 
one of the backers is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the dream is basically in Africa, there's a lot of people and they don't have access to first class ways to pay people or it's expensive. So this is to try and replicate the success of the M-Pesa network in Kenya, but do it across the whole of Africa basically give people a way to send money back home to loved ones. A lot of people are working in different countries. They can be away from their families, never see their kids for four years. Someone who works for my family, she's just gone back home to Malawi, you know, and it's been four years. And that's really, really tough. And the idea with Mojulip is to give everybody access to the financial system that we take for granted, you know, and basically to make it cheaper and, and in doing that lift a whole lot of people above the critical poverty line. So it's an amazing project that Mojulip Foundation are doing. Coil are one of the partners, the sponsors, and one of the technical partners. So that's how I got involved with it. But that angle of cost efficiency and access, that's where I was coming in. You know, how do we, where are all the bottlenecks in the system? How do we make it cheaper to operate? Because unfortunately, the cloud costs were you know, a few thousands of dollars, it was a lot. And not really getting the scale that can support a whole country's digital payments because basically one country will take Modulup and banks will deploy it and then the central bank. It's kind of like a group of card players at the table and then Modulup keeps track of who owes who. So that's what's going on, those two things. But in this payment switch, it's open source. I was looking at the core system where the money is moving between parties and what I saw was there was a lot of MySQL and Pacona and lots of pages and pages of optimizing that for newer hardware. It's The defaults are all for hard disk drives, stuff like that. You can spend a year just getting a 1% gain. And there was also like lots of Kafka, lots of microservices, in some cases like 600 dependencies, thousands and thousands of lines of code. And this was all just to do double entry accounting and to track who owes who. And it's a little bit more than double entry because it's also, you know, again, this idea of two-phase commit. So in your books, you're recording that you're about to send money to another country or, and then once you're sure that it's gone through, then you record it again. So it's kind of like a tentative double entry. And that's such a difference, but it was really a complicated system. And you could kind of see, well, we're building a database, but we don't know it. It sounds like you have a, some really unusual like sort of production needs here, because on the one hand, obviously you want them to process quickly, like you want them to go through quickly. And that's, I guess, partly about the network, partly about the database. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the more important thing is that you really want to keep the costs low, because if the costs are high, then you have to make up for that by charging people per transaction. And the whole point of this is to help people like pay less for these types of transactions. Exactly. That was really driving me, you know, that's, it's an interesting thing because you've got performance on the one end of the spectrum, but it's really about cost efficiency. So, you know, some people said to me a million transactions a second, who needs that? But another way to look at it is that if your system is a thousand times more efficient, it's also going to be a thousand times maybe cheaper. So all of a sudden, like where the cloud hardware was costing, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a month, you can run this on a Raspberry Pi and get 94,000 a second. And that's going to be enough for the whole country. It's just a cluster of Raspberry Pis. <laughs> it's going to be rock solid and just deployed anywhere. And that was kind of the, the vision that we had. And I guess above all is safety. That's the most important. It's literally people's livelihoods. And 
if you mess up the two-phase commit protocol, someone's money is stuck. When money means so much to people, then you don't want to get that wrong because that it's going to impact families. And so we thought, well, this isn't really, we shouldn't be doing this in JavaScript or across multiple systems. We really need a database and SQL isn't really right because SQL is not enough. It doesn't give you these primitives. You know, to build them around SQL is too dangerous. So I have to ask because, of course, you know, as soon as anyone says, I need both safety and I need performance, they're like, there's only one language you could have possibly chosen for this task, which is Rust. So, <laughs> but I happen to know that you didn't choose Rust for this. <laughs> what was sort of the thought process? I mean, obviously, this the thought had occurred to you, I'm assuming, to choose Rust for this. I'm curious what your thinking was there. I love everything about different languages, you know, where they make a, a contribution. And I remember when I first saw Rust come out, I thought, wow, like this ticks all the boxes. I, you know, I was trying to do more and more work in JavaScript that was performance sensitive where you, it's as if you wanted to have first class pointers in JavaScript and do your own memory management and you're avoiding the GC and you can do some pretty amazing stuff even in JavaScript. But then at one point you realize, okay, well, really a systems language, I want, I want CPU intrinsics, you know, built-ins. Like SIMD and things like that. Exactly, yeah. And it's just a shame that you can't access that in more languages because you should just be able to program the hardware, you know, even in a high-level language, like why not? Yeah. And that it was almost going to come to JavaScript, I think. I don't know where it is now, but the story of my JavaScript life is waiting for cool things to appear and then seeing them snatched away, you know, like I don't know if you web SQL. Oh, sure, yeah. And then we got IndexedDB instead. Yeah, 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 exactly. I guess we got LevelDB out of that because I think Google did LevelDB just to give us IndexedDB. But hey, we got LevelDB, which was pretty cool. So going back, Rust, yeah, I got involved in Node almost immediately. I was already programming JavaScript on the server with Rhino because that was the only way to do it. And I was, I was convinced that we were going to write JavaScript on the server and on the client. So I saw Node came along and I just jumped in and it was really early there. And maybe we can come back to this because it, there's kind of an interesting tie-in with Zig. With Rust, then, I was watching Ryan Dahl do Deno. I thought that was fantastic. He was fixing a lot of the problems. And he wrote this post called 10 Regrets, I think, about Node. And then I just, tongue-in-cheek, popped in a little issue for Deno early on. And I said, well, let's avoid six future regrets for Deno. Maybe one of them is that we'll have two GCs because at the time Deno was written in Go, great language. But now you've got two GCs. And I, I was really at the time like GC conscious. And GC is, is great, but it also can be a hidden cost, you know, where it can make things far more difficult in production systems. So I just said to Ryan, well, what do you think about rewriting Deno in Rust? This was before the whole, let's rewrite it in Rust thing. This was just truly, I thought at the time there was only like Rust was a good option. It was before Zig, I think, and just before. So he actually did, he, he rewrote Deno in Rust. But then like shortly after that, I discovered Zig and coming back to Mojuleep Tiger Beetle, one of the goals was again, like inclusion. So Mojuleep this open source project we want lots of people to work on it. And Rust would have given the project a steep learning curve. That's just the, you know, it comes with the territory. And whereas Zig was almost, you know, here's a language, it looks like TypeScript. It's very easy to read. So we're not expecting people to do contributions to a database in a systems language. Zig is hard to write. 
but it's asymmetric. It's extremely easy to read and follow along. And that was very important for Mojiloop that we make the open source accessible to people. If we had written it in C, it would have been, wouldn't have had that. So the readability of Zig was one of the factors. And I guess, yeah, we circle back. The other factor for Zig was that like you could see the quality was there already. And I'd been following already for two years before we made the decision. And the one thing I realized, like what I learned from Node is that if you can be early in a community, it's really, really valuable. You have so many levels. You just, your signal to noise ratio is much higher. You'll meet talented developers that are, they were also running Rhino on the server, just waiting for this better event at IO, which at the time was quite a breakthrough. You know, everyone was writing blocking code and I was doing Ruby on Rails and WebSockets, but there was no great way to do like evented IO for WebSockets. I realized with Zig, the same thing is happening here. And here's the chance to, to get in early and learn a lot. And it's also the language I was looking for, because for me, the number one thing was, was memory management and explicitness and being able to handle like allocation failure. I was getting into static memory allocation for everything. I just find it actually is like a different way of, of designing APIs and things, but it's actually easier than dynamic. I don't think I would go back to dynamic memory management. <laughs> so all these things, and I was doing some security work. The fact that Zig had checked arithmetic enabled by default, there are things in Zig that from a security perspective, it sounds weird. Obviously, memory set is important, but Zig already solves so much low-hanging fruit. It's kind of an order of magnitude safer then see along those lines with special safety. Checked arithmetic, though, that's the big one. Most people don't know about it, you know, with buffer bleeds, heart bleed, cloud bleed. Those were like the most expensive vulnerabilities ever were because of things that checked arithmetic would prevent. And I, I'm always amazed, you know, I, I always ask the Rust folk, like, please, let's just switch that on by default in safe bolts because it's safer. <laughs> I, I just love that Zig has it switched on. It, Zig just has a different approach to safety. It's, it's more nuanced and a better yeah, readability, control flow, all of that. I think these are some really interesting topics you're bringing up because like, when I think about safety, there's a lot of different ways you can break that down. One is memory safety. And sure, like Rust has some really novel features around memory safety. I find them very helpful. But there's a lot more dimensions to safety. One aspect, for example, has basically nothing to do with your programming language, which is like preventing intrusion. If you're worried about an attacker like brute forcing your system, that's all application development to try and make it safe. And I don't know that like any particular language can like really give you any particular amount of help against that. There's also aspects like you mentioned, like how does arithmetic work? Because yeah, like if you have unchecked arithmetic, meaning that by default, what the CPU does, if you say like add this number and that number, if the result is too big for the size of integer you're working with, it's just going to overflow and wrap around. That is a thing that attackers can exploit. Absolutely. And also you've got, when it comes to memory safety, there are more ways to look at that than just how memory is allocated and deallocated. There's also how it's accessed. Like the example of like, you can do this kind of stuff in JavaScript. And I, I'm familiar with these techniques. I haven't personally use them, but I know that like a lot of game programmers in JavaScript will do this. And I've heard like people do this in C sharp too, where they'll basically make a quote unquote pool of memory, right? You have some really long array of a bunch of objects and you essentially do manual memory management where rather than creating new objects from scratch, you'll just go and mutate existing ones that you'd already allocated in that array. 
just to avoid the cost of allocation, deallocation, and garbage collection and all that. The thing is, if you're doing that, you're already doing a significant chunk of manual memory management. You're just not doing the manual like allocation and deallocation. So that means you don't have to worry about use after freeze or double freeze, which is definitely a plus. But it does still mean that you have to worry about, like you were saying, like buffer overflows and like, you know, indexing into the wrong point in the array and stuff like that. And that that can cause problems. And you don't need a borrow checker to fix that. You just need bounce checking. (laughs) So like Zig has that, Rust has that, C does not have that. Yeah, exactly. And Zig's just got these rich types and explicitness around casting. And Zig goes so much further just compared to C that... I'm kind of more worried about the security of NPM at that point. You know, I was chatting. So again, coming to Zig was the safety angle, but that was because I was doing security work. So I was doing like bug bounties and finding ways to hack Chrome and fast mail, like, you know, give someone a, just let them click a link and you can access all their attachments automatically and update the bank account numbers. Wow. You really came a long way from your accounting degree. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this was all, you know, part of the bug bounty program. It was it was a lot of fun. And I just did it to learn. But I realized that memory safety does not imply security. And I think there's a lot of theater at the moment where people get complacent and they think they're going to use a memory safe language like JavaScript and they're going to be secure. It doesn't follow. I think the biggest security risk these days is the JavaScript ecosystem. And I don't mean that as criticism. I just mean it as I think I think that's what a lot of security people are worried about. It's getting a lot of attention, supply chain attacks. And that means that, you know, other memory safety, memory safe languages can also have that problem. But maybe what I could add is just kind of at the time, you know, there was that bug bounty work. And I also had this other lucky thing happen where, so this is kind of tied in with Josh Wolf. If he's listening, we had this kind of connection that we didn't know about, but I think he's he's on the Zig Foundation, you know, on the board. He had one of the most awesome zip passes called Yet Another Unzip Library. And it's amazing. It's written in JavaScript. It's the most incredible zip implementation ever. And I was reading that. It was fantastic. And I, at the time, I was working on a like a zip file format static analysis tool that you can take a zip file and this static analysis tool is kind of going to be like the borrow checker, although not exactly, but it's actually going to look for you and tell you if any structs in the zip would trigger a buffer overflow in C. It's going to do stuff like that. So the tool is written in JavaScript and it's going to tell you if you pass this zip file into like an antivirus program or unzipper, are you going to have an exploit like a zero day? or not. And the signal to noise is pretty high again because you're looking for stuff that is obviously going to overflow, you know, checked arithmetic overflow or buffer overflow. You can verify that with static analysis. And the idea was that this would be a great way for email gateways, you know, most attacks happen through email breaches and most email file a lot of them are zip. Yeah, so this, I just had this tool that was working well and the next thing the security researcher, you know, he found a flaw Basically, he used the scientific method to devise the most potent zip bomb ever. And he took down Google, he took down Chrome, Microsoft, about 100 different antiviruses on VirusTotal, everything. And he he won best paper at the workshop on offensive technologies. So for those who don't know, do you just briefly explain what a zip bomb is? 
Yeah, so uh, uh, ZipPalm is basically where, in this case, it's like a 42 kilobyte file, and it'll cause your machine to just continuously decompress it until you've exhausted all your disk space and all your memory and shut down the system. So it's kind of like a denial of service attack. <laughs> For the machine that, that, that unfortunately tries to unzip it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And this was pretty interesting because if you had like a zip file in the web and you open it, it would just crash Chrome because Chrome would proactively try to decompress. But this zip bomb was the zip bomb of zip bombs, you know, we expand to like 42 petabytes or something from 40. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Never ending story. <laughs> and yeah, so he, David Fifield did this thing and it, it literally shut down all the security systems everywhere. All the, I never knew, like, you know, Microsoft have got this big pipeline, like an oil pipeline, but it's a software pipeline and every single piece of code ever, like if you get a Microsoft update for Excel or Windows or whatever, everything goes through this pipeline and they check it and they run it through hundreds of tools, you know. So it was shutting down systems like this. And now suddenly companies can't release software because there are now a hundred antivirus programs and they're all vulnerable. And then like, what do you do? Do you now only use one antivirus now to check? <laughs> or do you, <laughs> you know, do you ask all your vendors to now fix so that they can also detect these David Firefield zip? So luckily, so I had this thing and it was one of the maybe only tools that actually caught it as a zero day. And I came in there and I helped them to put it into their system and kind of be the first line of defense for, you know, how do you, how do you protect the antivirus from the virus that attacks the antivirus? And that, that was this. <laughs> and basically that experience, then when I saw Zig, I really liked Zig because I thought, wow, the number one lesson I learned is that it's not so much memory safety that makes a system vulnerable, the lack of it. It's a semantic gap. It's where you've got a little hole in the basement, you know, in the floorboards, and then the attacker will come at you from the basement. We'll be looking for them to come through the front door of memory safety or not safety or whatever, but they're just going to surprise us and come through totally different. So they, they're always coming through these little gaps. It's like you've got gaps in the floorboard and the ants come through. So wherever there's like a little mismatch between interfaces or abstraction, where you've got tons of abstractions, they're not zero cost. Every abstraction has a cost because it brings like these semantic gaps. It's that that is the thing that makes systems not secure where they've got these gaps. And Zig was just so great because it, no hidden control flow, like everything is explicit. Like, And this is the stuff that really makes systems secure. These are the powerful ideas. Like you said, you know, safety is much more than just memory. That's what I really loved about Zig. So I thought, here's a great language. You know, everybody can read it. It's early. There's a lot of community benefits coming in early. So it's easier to audit, it sounds like, is, is kind of one way to say it. Because the code is so much more straightforward, you can look through it and try to go hunting for vulnerabilities and find them more easily because it's so much more of a one-to-one -one mapping between what the code's doing and what the machine's doing. Exactly. I think, thanks for just summarizing that so, so concise. <laughs> cool, cool. I, checking my own understanding here. I also like your comments about getting in early with communities having its own benefits, because I think usually when people think about being an early adopter of a technology, 
they mostly think about the downsides. In other words, like, well, it's not finished yet. It's not polished yet. There's things missing. There's not an ecosystem yet. And sometimes when people think about the benefits, they're usually more on the technical side. Like, well, yes, but, you know, you're getting to use this technology that's like a step ahead of what, you know, more established technologies are doing. But the community aspect, that's a great point. I mean, I've been involved in a couple of language communities when they were early on. And because that group sort of selects for people who are really interested in like learning more and like pushing themselves and like getting outside of their comfort zones. I've generally found that people who are early adopters of languages tend to be more patient and more willing to help others in the, in that community and like give more personal attention, spend more time helping you like get ramped up to speed. Whereas the more established the language gets, it's more like, well, just go buy a book on it, go read stack overflow, go, you know, yeah. Why are you bothering me with this? You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe people aren't you know dismissive like that, but like, there's definitely some inverse relationship between the size of a language and like how tightly knit and helpful the community is on some level. Yeah, that that's exactly it, Richard. Like, really resonates with me. I've seen that, you know, and it's always funny because people say, "Oh, well, there's a small pool now to hire from," or all of that. And I actually, it's the inverse there's not a better time to hire now than in the Zig community. You're going to find the most talented people ever. You just put a blindfold on, throw a dart and you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be amazing. You know, you just, there's just brilliant people. Like all of them are fantastic and their the skills they've got are just scary how good they are. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely found this to be true in other uh, like emerging language communities as well. It's, it's not just Zig <laughs> in terms of hiring. Exactly. Not just say, yeah, I think it's true. You know, you, we've got a great quality technology or project. The early adopters can spot that quality and that tells you something about them also. I like to think of it like surfing where the worst time to catch a wave is when everyone's on it. Then the red <laughs> wave is already finished. It, you know, you, you're riding the foam, but the best time to catch the wave is when there's maybe going to be a few people on it, but they're the people that know how to spot the swell they're already out there. They're timing the break because kind of technology moves in waves, you know, and languages are evolving and we're learning, everybody, we're learning new ideas like the borrow checker and Zig's approach to memory. We're learning these new things and but it comes in waves and then you, you get some people that can spot it. And so if you can get on that wave, you have to know how to spot the quality. So it's about quality, not quantity. Yeah. What other projects, Richard, have you seen it happen in? Elm is the one that comes immediately to mind. We've been hiring Elm programmers for years at work. And people always ask me like, how do you hire anyone if you're using this, you know, niche technology? And from my perspective, I'm like, I don't know how we hired anyone before Elm because we went a very long time when we were using JavaScript, trying to find someone who was at the intersection of like, wanted to work for us and was at, you know, the level of expertise that we were looking for, for like a front end engineer. It was like literally a couple of years before we found somebody who like, you know, checked all those boxes. Because you got to keep in mind, it's it's not just, oh, well, we're using this technology. Of course, everyone will want to work here. It's like, well, there's a lot of different reasons that people do or don't want to work at a particular company. And especially when you're like a smaller company, like we were back then, it's not like we were offering these like massive salaries or huge benefits, like some, you know, I don't know, better VC finance companies were or whatever. So you got to have something that makes your place stand out in this like sea of JavaScript job openings. And for whatever reason, we didn't have enough. But when we switched to Elm, it was a totally different story because there were so many great Elm programmers 
that were like, I want to get a job writing Elm. That's what I want to do. And we were one of the few places that could actually offer that. And so it just hiring became so, so much easier all of a sudden. That was not why we started using Elm, but it was a very unexpected benefit. And now I've heard that story from enough other people that I'm like, okay, I think this is just a phenomenon. It's not an isolated case. Yeah. Yeah. So many benefits. How did you guys decide on Elm in particular? So the basic story of how we ended up on Elm is we had been using JavaScript. It was very small. A company back then. Now we're like 150 people, but back then it was about five people. We were building tools for teachers, as we still do, and we were doing JavaScript. And React came out. I started using React like on the side, and I was like, I think this might be good at work. Let's try it out. I was really into functional programming. Everybody was like, Okay, seems good. Comes out of Facebook, you know, a lot of social proof there. So we tried React out, and we really liked it. But I'd really been looking for something more like a functional language, which I, I had a friend who was like really into Haskell and kind of got me going on that and interested in that. But I was like focused on front end development. So I was sort of waiting for something that had these like pure functional type checked characteristics that I could use to build web UIs. Long story short, Elm comes out. I started trying it in my spare time, really liked it. But I was like, "Eh, I don't think we should use this at work for all the usual reasons, right? Like we're a small company. We shouldn't take a bet on something like this. You know, how are we going to hire anybody? Yada, yada. But at some point I realized on this one particular project, I was like, wow, we spent so much time doing this in React. And I know how much faster this would have gone in Elm over the course of this, just this one project, Elm would have paid for itself. And then we'd have a much easier to maintain code base going forward. So I was like, I think I just was too cautious. And I think we should just try this. So we tried it, really liked it. More and more of our code base started becoming in Elm just because people liked doing it in Elm better. And then we just kind of became an Elm shop. And it was really all about I mean, for us, it wasn't like security at all. Although I think the Elm package ecosystem is definitely more secure than the job than like NPM. It was really all about productivity. It was about like, we can build the same stuff and like get it out the door at about the same amount of time. And then it's just much easier to maintain afterwards. Also like happiness, like people are a lot happier <laughs> using it. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was your call. Yeah. Good call. I mean, I, I was the instigator, I guess. I don't know if it was my call, but... <laughs> So it's worked out super well. And I have heard similar stories at other companies where like they got it started as like a small thing with with Elm in particular. And then like they've had success hiring people. They're happier with their code base. Like it does occasionally happen, but it's, it's pretty rare that I hear someone be like, oh, we switched to Elm and then we actually didn't like it and we switched back. Sometimes I hear we switched to Elm and then we liked parts of it, but decided to go with a yet another like functional language, which, you know, Makes sense. Everyone's got different tastes, but pretty rare that I would hear like we went to Elm, we embraced it, and then like we actually decided to go back to TypeScript or something like that. Yeah. Oh wow. And I think like Elm has got a framework. It's pretty similar to Rails. So in the sense that like, so Elm is like unlike Rails, it's it's exclusively for front end development. It doesn't have like a back end you know equivalent. Like Rails, it is pretty broad in terms of its scope as a language. It's very batteries included for front-end development. It's not like, oh, I'll use Elm. Like basically, like everybody uses the same HTTP library. Everybody uses the same rendering library. And it's all there. Like the, it's got a complete story for front-end development, just like Rails has a complete story for back-end development. But I think philosophically, in terms of like individual design decisions, I think Elm feels very different to Rails to me. 
like rails is dynamically typed elm is statically typed and like very hardcore about it. like it's a sound type system it's it doesn't have like you know null there's a lot of individual design decisions that are very different between elm and rails but but in terms of scope i'd, I'd say they're like pretty comparable in terms of like what they're trying to do or what they're trying to cover in their respective domains which I guess is pretty different to something like Zig or like Rust. Both of them are like, we're trying to provide these like building blocks, but we're not trying to tell you how to do like systems development or provide like a very clear path for how to do it, like a whole story. It's more about like, we've got this tool set and it's got these characteristics that hopefully you will like. <laughs> yeah, and now, now I'll go and build rock. Yeah. Let's <laughs> seem to be saying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Rock is definitely more on the side of Zig or Rust in terms of like the language itself is is quite small and it's not trying to say here's how to do like backend web server development in Rock, which is a difference to Elm. But it does have this whole concept of platforms and applications, which is sort of like the, I don't know, the equivalent of that, I guess. You mentioned that when you first learned about Node, sort of the big pitch was the like evented IO. So I'm curious, like how did that, sort of become something that you were interested in. Obviously, lots of people do blocking IO, like synchronous IO. So like Ruby does that, Python. I guess you can do async Python now. I think that was not true for a long time, but I guess it's a thing that you, I've heard you can do now. But as I understand it, the main pitch there is really, it's mainly about, I guess, performance slash, hopefully not. I've heard the term like losing the lottery, referring to like, what if you have N web servers and you're unfortunate enough to have all of them be doing long running blocking IO at exactly the same time. And then new requests just get dropped or get queued up because got unfortunate, (laughs) unlucky. So what was the pitch there? Like what was appealing to you about that? I was doing a lot of front end work and building software for restaurants actually and this was at a time when south africa we were pretty far behind with our dial-up and this was software for restaurants not in the city but in the winelands so now you can imagine how far behind the connectivity was so basically it was software that had to run in the browser and it had to work offline hence my great loss at web sql being kicked out because it was perfect for writing offline databases, you know, in the browser. And we had that going and the first iPad came out and already this stuff worked on the iPad and, and restaurants were using it. And these were like some of the top South Africa's Cape Town's got some of the top restaurants in the world. So it was some of those, you know, it was awesome just going out there, driving out to these beautiful places in the winelands and um, getting to work with some fantastic chefs. Kind of like if you picture MasterChef, you know, those kinds of chefs that would come in, you know, and, and they've got these beautiful restaurants, and but they, they don't have beautiful internet. <laughs> so, so we, you know, you needed like web sockets and things that all helped with the latency for the API. And then on the back end, you know, if you want to power web sockets, you really need like async. So the node was great at that. And I think maybe since then, I've kind of changed my mind. I think now connectivity's got so good that kind of like I would do more and more server-side rendering in a way. Like you're saying with Elm, you've just got, okay, Elm's front, you know, client-side, but you just get so much more developer velocity. I see today JavaScript, you, there's so many choices and concurrency is not easy, you know, kind of currency is the kind of thing you want to put in the database, not in the business logic. But uh, just to add, you know, what we were saying about early communities, it's also true for, I think, if you want to find like customers or you want to build your own community around your own open source 
I think we get people coming to us, they want to use Tiger Beetle. And it's amazing because these are like CTOs, you know, of an energy startup in UK. And they're brilliant technologists. It's, it's incredible, like the things that they say. I'm just, it's jaw-dropping. And that that's because they come to us through Zig. Zig is such a great filter. You really, like, in so many ways, you know, like meeting people or, you know, growing your own community. Now we all get to read the standard lib. How, what a privilege. No baby healing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the other reason for Tiger Beetle was because we realized, look, to build a distributed database, you know, you've got a consensus protocol in there, storage engine is like a big, big job. You've got to do it safe. And so it takes a while. So we figured like at least two years for production. And then we realized too, okay, well, you know, do we want to do C now? Maybe not. That's going to be a tax for the next 20 years. Do we want to do Rust? Well, we're doing static allocation of all our memory. We don't free. So we don't have a problem with use after free. We're doing single-threaded control flow. We're not doing multi-threading because, you know, these days, yeah, this is another idea. Like, I think technology always is born out of its environment, like the problems of the time. And for Rust, maybe that was, like, if you wanted to do I.O., you needed a thread pool because Linux didn't have async I.O. And in the browser, there's a lot of multi-threading and stuff. And Rust, now you can, you know, fearless concurrency. But these days we've got IOU ring and that lets you have a single threaded control plane and, you know, let the kernel be your thread pool. It's far more efficient and it's nicer. You know, you don't have to have memory barriers or locks in your code mutexes. The hardware's changed so much that those are actually bad. I don't think they're great design decisions to be doing a lot of locking in your, it's bad for the CPU. The CPU is like a sprinter. It just wants to run the hundred meters as fast as it can without coordinating, you know, with other CPUs that and IOU ring lets you do that. You have your control plane, your business logic running on one CPU. It's got these beautiful ring buffers to submit stuff without a context switch to the kernel. And like hardware is so fast, like NVMe, that a context switch is now same order of magnitude. So you can kind of choose, you know, if we're going to do blocking IO or use a thread pool and context switch, we're basically halving our IO throughput compared to using IOU ring. So all of these things, you know, you kind of start to see, well, we didn't need the borrow checker because we're single threaded. We never free, don't have use after freeze. Like, like you touched on, you know, we've got a buffer pool and checked arithmetic then is important. So like, if I understand this right, so basically you have your Zig code doesn't use like Zig's async await at all. It's written as if it were single threaded, but really what the single threaded code is doing is using operating system primitives to say, I want to enqueue this for the OS to handle the asyncness of it. It's going to do all the IO stuff and it's just, I'm going to write stuff into this queue. And then when it's done, the OS is going to give it off the other end of this queue so I can read it later. And you just have a gigantic while loop. And maybe, I guess you have one, each CPU core is running one of those. Yeah, we could. At the moment, it, it's so fast. We just have one thread. It's fine. It's like massively parallel, like we're dropping like 30 IOs into the kernel thread pool through these ring buffers with IU ring. And it was very simple, like really, really nice. And it's optimal, you know, because it's, you get double, you know, you don't have these context switches. And basically you can think of it as, it's like Node. 
but now in Zig. <laughs> and obviously it's totally different too. It's way more efficient. But it's the same idea, event loop, and you submit tasks, they get dropped in the kernel thread pool. But IE Ring is also great because it gives you a unified IO API, not only for file system access, but also for networking. So all of a sudden, you've got one way to do all your IO. And to me, if we had to do that in C, that would be way more scary just because you, well, I, I mean, you can use IE Ring too there, but... You know, you have to come up with your whole IO stack and IO Ring just gives you everything except async DNS. <laughs> so you get basically like a network request comes in and the way that you tell it that network request came in is you, you've just got this big while loop that's just watching for things to come out of this buffer. And one of the things that can come out of the buffer that, and the operating system is adding things to this buffer. And so one of the things that can come out is like, oh, hey, I finished that file system right that you asked for a while ago. And another one can be, oh, hey, this network request that you made, the response came back. And another one could just be, I'm a server. And so somebody has made a request to me, right? So all of those things could come in on the same buffer. So you just read the data out of the buffer and then you do like a switch statement to see like which type of thing was it. And that's it. <laughs> that's your whole, and all of it. And the OS is just doing all of the asyncs. And you can, of course, enqueue stuff you know, it didn't tell the OS like, okay, I want you to do this network request or this file write or file read even. So that's actually like very similar to conceptually, like the, we call it the Elm architecture, but this is basically like kind of at an abstraction level, like what Elm is sort of designed to do, but for like UI development, except instead of these things coming from the operating system, they're coming from like browser events, which usually get like a sort of tagged as like, you have to say like, oh, this is, you know, we call it a message. This is my representation of, you know, what I want to call this event. So I'm assuming you also do some sort of tagging for these things that are like coming back in off the buffer. So you can tell like, which request was it that's coming back, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's got a really nice, I love the design of IU Ring. Like, what's also great about it is you can control everything. You can put limits on everything. Let's start at the network. So you decide, okay, I'm building an API. I want to be able to handle maximum a thousand concurrent connections or, or whatever. Let's just use a small number. And then what you do is you drop a thousand accept syscalls into IU Ring. You just submit them. And then later on, you can reap them from the completion queue when you've now got a socket that's connected. Then you can decide, right, I want to now receive some data from the kernel for this connection. Like, here's my receive buffer. Let's just read a little bit of data in. And this is how much I'm prepared you know, to read. And then you can start doing like static allocation of everything. And you're never allocating memory. But the toughest part, like when you write like a production API is, isn't building it. It's afterwards where you're trying to like, harden it and set all your limits like resource limits and like node is really impossible with this because you can't limit anything you know it's just going to accept a connection you can i mean they but it's not easy i find this way easier in zig um, in javascript i'm never sure if i got it right because there's so many ways that data can just be allocated so you mentioned like static allocation, like you never deallocate anything. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Like, how does that work? I mean, I, I think of like, if I'm writing a, like a web server or something, like, of course I've got to do dynamic allocations. I can't just have one giant chunk of memory and that's everything's in there, but it sounds like that's what you're doing. 
That's what we're doing. <laughs> so how does that work? Yeah, so I learned it from JavaScript, surprisingly. And Tiger Beetle, we code to NASA. They had this awesome thing called the power of 10 rules for writing safety critical code. And I was using that already. Like It helps a lot from a security perspective. And a lot of the security tricks, I just turned the coin around. And there you've got all your safety tricks. Again, closing semantic gaps. But NASA's Power of 10 Rules for Writing Safety Critical Code is fantastic. There's assertions in there. I mean, that's a whole other thing we could chat about, assertions. And one of them also is like static allocation. So, you know, you, you can't just allocate memory at runtime. You need to know when you design a program, you have to think through everything up front, do back of the envelope calculations, decide how many connections will we possibly accept, design the whole system, you know, to, to handle that. And what you end up with, if you've done all the work, is kind of static allocation. So that's what we do. We've literally, you know, even in the consensus protocol, which is a little bit similar to Raft, if you know Raft, you know, in the consensus protocol, you're sending messages to other replicas in the cluster. And there's different types of messages you can send. We've even worked out, like, what's the maximum possible number of different, you know, concurrent messages that we could possibly, and we've statically allocated that. And actually, it wasn't that hard. Like the function to work that out was 10 lines of code. Huh. And it's so nice. It's just a different paradigm. I think people will think this is crazy. Like who does static allocation? But I can't imagine not doing it anymore. It's like a whole paradigm shift where you you basically just put an extra week or two up front into your design. And then you get all these dividends down the line because you know you've just got a rock solid system. And you're going to have super low, stable tail latencies. Like you certainly never have any, I mean, you're never freeing any memory. So you certainly don't have garbage collection. That's like a total joke compared to this, but also you don't even have like reference counting because you don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we do use reference counting on our ourselves, on our messages. You know, some messages are going to pick up a few references as they go through the consensus protocol. And then those references will unwind. And then we know that that message can go back to the pool to be used for something else. I see. Okay. So we do do that. I think one of the biggest challenges was in our storage engine, you know, each replica has got, you can imagine like LevelDB or RocksDB, it's a big LSM tree, like a key value storage. Every, if you want to know what a distributed database is, it's like two things. It's the global consensus protocol, the way they chat to each other and decide who's the president. <laughs> and that's also replication. The other ingredient is the storage engine, the big key value storage. And it doesn't matter what kind of database it is, if it's CockroachDB with SQL on the outside. Under the hood, it's these two things. So for us, the storage engine was interesting with static allocation because we did our own storage engine and... There were a lot of reasons for that. One of them was static allocation. It's hard to find these days storage engines that are super memory efficient. So because we're doing static allocation, we can do, with just a few hundred megs of RAM, we can have a database that can address, you know, like a hundred or so terabytes of storage. Most systems that do dynamic allocation, they're going to use gigabytes of RAM tens of gigabytes it's because because the design has never really considered you know resource usage like and resource usage across the four ingredients you know like network 
disk, memory, CPU. And those four ingredients have always got kind of, I think, two characteristics. There's latency and there's bandwidth. So you get CPU, latency, bandwidth. It's kind of interesting. People sometimes count instructions, but different instructions actually have different latencies. Some are more expensive than others. And memory is the same. You've got latency. So sometimes we just count cache misses and optimize. But there's very interesting stuff you can do if you look at memory bandwidth, because actually one cache miss has you know 100 nanosecond or whatever latency, but the CPU will allow you to do 10 in parallel. So you can start thinking of, okay, wow, you know, let me actually fetch more from the memory than I, let me exploit bandwidth and you can trade that off for. So these kind of four things, you've always got latency bandwidth, and, but static allocation is kind of, you're just thinking all of those ingredients, back of the envelope calculations, you know, latency numbers, every programmer should know. Yeah. It does cost a few more weeks in design phase, but then your implementation phase, I think you're more, you teed up. And in production, it's just a pleasure. But like I said, yeah, the one aspect was our storage engine because we've now got, instead of one LSM tree, we've got like 30. We went wild. We call it a forest, LSM forest. <laughs> there were great reasons for that. You know, you can basically, instead of putting lots of different data into a pyramid, then when you want to find data, you've got to now sift through all the data you're not looking for, you know, different types of data. Now you put... Every different type of data gets its own tree, but you get consistency across the trees, which you couldn't really do if you had like lots of individual level DBs or rocks DBs. But that was a challenge for static, static allocation because now we don't know, you know, which tree is going to be, I don't know, what's the tallest tree in the States? I think I've seen it. I believe it's in Northern California and I forget what it's name is. I want to say it was like Sherman or something. It's named after some figure in American history. It's a sequoia. Oh, okay. Is a sequoia, Richard? I believe so. That's that's the type of tree. It's a sequoia tree. They're enormous. <laughs> we couldn't figure out which was going to be that sequoia, you know, and now how do we allocate the, the groundwater to the biggest tree? And I see, right. In the end, we just realized, well, we're going to have a pool of buffers and the trees can suck from that and and grow and and actually it was a bit it's harder up front and then it gets easier and easier and then i think you actually have more developer velocity because the design is right anyway so putting all this together i'm curious like so you had this older version that was like mysql and microservices and stuff and then you ended up with tiger beetle what have you seen in terms of like the performance difference like in practice like putting all this stuff together the iou ring and static allocation all these techniques zig <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Can you throw some numbers at me in terms of like what the old system could do and the new one could do instead? Cool. So the old system, a few thousand dollars a month of cloud hardware, that was the minimum possible deployment that we were interested in. It could do 76 transactions a second. We were able to optimize things, double it, 140, you know, with the old system, but it was going to take us years just to get further, you know, nothing to move the needle. So 140 TPS. Tiger Beetle was, it was extracted kind of like, you know, Ruby on Rails was extracted from Basecamp. So we extracted Tiger Beetle from a real system. And then to integrate it back into Moduloop, just to benchmark, took like a day. And straight away, it was doing 2000 something TPS. And that was with all the overhead still of like 600. There was lots of, basically all the overhead was in the Moduloop API. But just like that, you know, you're, you're jumping more than 10x. 
more than 10 ads. And it was super easy. And and now all of a sudden, Mojuloop is like that area of the code is a joy because you've just got a you've got a database there. All your financial invariants are now safely locked up tight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but Tiger Beetle, you know, depending on how people code to it, you could get up to a million TPS if your API layer is also efficient. And that gives you these nice advantages, you know, like cost efficiency or just handle load spikes or what was really interesting is that we graphed the latencies and someone actually said it was a religious experience seeing that because with MySQL, it was spiky, you know, like Bart Simpson's haircut. And then with Tiger Beetle, it was just a flat line. It was a different scale. The other one was like maybe one second spikes and level db rocks db also have a problems you know with these one second two second spikes but with tiger beetle it was just like 10 milliseconds just flat line like no, no matter what you do yeah that was special i mean usually the database is the bottleneck but it sounds like in your case it's the other way around it's actually the thing that's talking to the database that's the bottleneck in terms of performance yeah they couldn't saturate it we were literally hitting the limits of nodes nodes http because Node's HTTP, I think at the time, could do like 10K a second. So we were just maxing out on that. Wow. Okay, so it sounds like then the next step is you got to rewrite that layer in Zig. <laughs> well, someone actually, they mentioned that. And the safety story was fun too, you know, because we realized we've got to be so much safer. We can't just be as safe as we've really got to do, like hit it out the park with research on safety, storage faults, like fault injection, Let's just corrupt every replica 30%. And like the raft protocol can't handle that by design because it always has to elect a pristine leader. But so we had to do stuff there where no database can withstand this many cosmic rays. <laughs> but that was the safety story. But then what was interesting was that it was kind of the goal. Like, let's make people really uncomfortable that they're not using Tiger Beetle for all their data. So people started saying, well, I've just got a problem because I'm I'm happy that my money is there, but my user profiles are going to get corrupt or my comments on my blog or whatever, you know, my, how do we put that in, in Tiger Beetle? So, but I mean, we're still early days and we're, we're still getting to a production release. So don't like, you know, like Zig, don't use this in, in production. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Wow. Very exciting. And it's really cool to hear a success story of like, you know, you adopted a new technology and then you like it solved the problem like really well. Yeah. Kudos to you for getting there. Yeah. I mean, kudos to Andrew. We could never have done Tiger Beetle without Zig. Zig is the, the stars just aligned the timing. There's so many doors opened. That's great. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story. This is like really interesting to hear about. Yeah. Best of luck with it. Thanks, Richard. It's been a blast. All right. Thanks. Thanks.